You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Lord sets you so if the son sets you free you will be free indeed. I know that you are that you are offspring of Abraham yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will, not, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of God. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you revealed yourself to us. We pray now that we would understand it more clearly, that we would see you more clearly. Father, I need you now. We pray that you might speak your word. We want to hear it. I pray now that your people might even hear a better sermon than I preach now. By the power of your spirit and for our own good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
may be seated. Good evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'm glad to see you all this evening. Got to, my family got to spend the morning this morning at Desert Springs. Got to preach there this morning. It was great to be back there. That's where I was on staff there for many years. And those were my people for like four or five years. But now, like, it was weird. It was weird being there. It was great. It was like going home for Thanksgiving in college or something. It felt warm and a place that used to be home, but it wasn't home anymore because these aren't my people. It's good to see you, my people. Uh, it's really great to be here with you this evening. Well, have you ever been around a kid that is just like a straight-up mini-me of their father? Right? Uh, it's not just that their faces look similar, but the kid, like, walks like the dad. He talks like the dad. They've got the same mannerisms, sense of humor, the whole bit. Uh, my son Caleb and I, we, we barely go a week without hearing the words mini-me. Uh, the relationship of the father and a child is one of the most important relationships we'll ever have. Which is why it can be so heartbreakingly difficult when a father is gone, when a father is missing or neglecting his responsibility. Perhaps less and less these days, but it's a relationship that we often think about in our stories. Uh, baseball season is nigh upon us. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised, uh, which means it's about that time of the year to break out Field of Dreams, like you ought to all. Uh, and what's the climax of the movie, right? When, when Kevin Costner has a catch with his dad, and then he looks over and he realizes what he presently has, or what he has with his daughter Annie. It's, it's the best. Simba, you know, Simba, he, he grieves the loss of his father. Uh, but then he runs from guilt and the fear of not living up to his father's great name. In so many stories, the character works so hard to be different than his or her father or mother, to be better, to live a different and better life than they experienced growing up as a child, only to find themselves to be exactly like them as an adult. Michael Corleone. We're going to think a lot about what it means to be a son or daughter tonight and how and who our father really is matters to our lives and our existence and how even unintentionally will definitely bear the family resemblance. We're going to split up our text tonight into two halves. First, we'll think about what it means to be a son of God, but then we'll, to actually be a son of God, you have to do so through the son of God. To be a son of God through the son of God. So first of all, and for the first half of our text in John 8, to be a son of God. Just to get us on a running start here, uh, let's into the second half of chapter. Let's go back into it, back where we were. Jesus is still in the middle of a back and forth with the crowd through this first half of the chapter. He's standing in front of the giant feast of tabernacle torches right behind him, and he's saying, hey, don't be distracted by those giant torches behind me. They're dim compared to me. I am the light of the world. If you want to see, follow me. And in his teaching about himself, John tells us in verse 30 that some even come to believe him. But Jesus isn't in this game to just emotionally and rhetorically whip up a bunch of converts, a bunch of huge crowds that make him popular. He's in this for some cost-counting disciples who will actually love and follow him because they actually see him for who he, who he is and trust him for the better life that he's offering not just because they want an easier life of the life that they already have. And so when he begins pressing in, the, the new so-called believers start pressing back. And then begins in chapter 8, what I shared with you way back in week 1 of our 
look through the Gospel of John as a summary for basically every chapter of the book of John, and it's this. This happens in every chapter. Jesus says, guys, I'm totally God. And the crowd says, no, you aren't. And Jesus says, yes, I am. And the crowd says, prove it. And then Jesus says, watch me die. He says that he'll be lifted up, and in his death on the cross, many will finally see who he is. So after telling them that his word brings truth and freedom, and after the Jews say that they don't need freedom, they've never been enslaved, they're already free, Jesus starts really pushing in on the idea of sonship. In 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. He's basically saying that a household slave can get sold in a moment's notice. He has no recourse. There's nothing he can do about it. He has no security. Certainly no inheritance is owed to him. But a son, a son, a son doesn't get sold. A son has security. He doesn't get transferred from one house to another. The son belongs because he shares the name and the identity of the father of the house. He belongs there. He's secure. So Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, I, the son, can set you the slaves, free, and free forever, never again to return to the slavery of sin that you've experienced. And how do I know that you're slaves? How do I know that you need to be set free from your slavery? Because although you're a physical offspring of Abraham, you want to kill me. Just look at yourselves. Look at the the emotions in your heart. Look at what you want to do with me. You want to kill me. In verse 38, I only say what I hear from my father, which shows that we actually don't share the same father. If I am hearing from my father and you want to kill me, perhaps it's because we don't have the same father. And having any other father than mine is to be in bondage, is to be enslaved. Hang on though, the Jews say in verse 39, I'm minuta bitter. We have a father. I don't know why they're German. I don't know. We have a father, though. And he says, they say, our father is Abraham. Abraham not only heard directly from God and responded rightly most of the time, but God made loads of promises to Abraham's descendants that his descendants would be God's covenant people, that he would give them land and he would bless those who bless his descendants and he would curse those who curse his descendants. So be very careful here, Jesus, about what you're saying or what you're going to say now here. Be real careful about what you're going to say to us, Abraham's children. But Jesus basically says, yeah, so here's the thing. If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. Implication meaning Sharing Abraham's DNA is spiritually meaningless. As Paul will say in Romans 2, it is in fact good to be Jewish. That since they were so up close and personal with God's word, they began to know him. They were raised in the knowledge of God. But what good is any of that knowledge if it just leads you to boast in yourself? No, Paul concludes, beginning in Romans 2.28. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit. A son or daughter of Abraham isn't a son or daughter because they share his DNA. They are a son or daughter because they share his faith. 
But, Jesus says in verse 40, you now seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You aren't hearing from God because you aren't hearing me. Would Abraham have been Abraham had he not heard God's word and left Chaldea? Would he have actually had faith had he not dropped his idols back there and come in faith to worship the one true God? Would he have shown that he actually trusted in God's goodness and in his promises, in his provision and goodness when he heard God to trust him with the life of his son Isaac? No, his hearing, which means more than just listening, but his receiving and obeying, his faith is what is credited to him as righteousness. It's not just that he had some interesting strand of DNA and now he's calling them out on it. You are not acting like Abraham. You are not hearing. You claim to be like your dad, but there is absolutely no family resemblance. You claim to hear, but you don't. And if you do hear, you don't respond and follow like he did. Are you sure he's your daddy? Because you sure don't look like him. This is basically what he says in, in, the, in the verse 4. You're doing the works your father did, meaning someone other than Abraham is your father. You're doing the works of somebody else, of some other father, because you're not doing the works of him, the father you claim to have. And perhaps this hits a little too close to home. Perhaps in defense of themselves and in trying to sneeringly discredit Jesus, they say in the middle of verse 41, we were not born of sexual immorality, We are not illegitimate children, but you are. It appears the scandalous events surrounding Jesus' birth, they've followed him for about three decades. And these folks have long memories and they jump at the opportunity. You are certainly one to talk about fathers and legitimacy. All that when we all know about Joseph and Mary. How dare you call us illegitimate And on top of that, we have one father, even better than Abraham, God. Abraham's not our only father. God is our father. Several times throughout the law and the prophets, God calls Israel his son, his firstborn son. And he calls himself father to them. So they're claiming what what God has said about them and about himself throughout their history. But Jesus is unrelenting. In verse 42, he says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. He's been dropping hints at where this is going. He was getting the grenade out of his bag, right, when he said that Abraham wasn't their father. And he's, he's like pulling the pen out when he says that God isn't their father. But everybody comes from somebody, right? This is, a, this is an implication of it. Everybody comes from somebody, and somebody must be your father. So who is it? Verse 44, and lob the grenade. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. It's his nature to murder, like you're planning to do to me right now. You're following in his nature, He doesn't hear the truth from God. He twists it. He lies and deceives. And you're looking just like your dad right now. You walk and talk like him. You share the same mannerisms. 
And then verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear from them is that you are not of God. God is not your father. So stop claiming him to be your father. You have a different father and he is the devil. And so back to the original point. Yeah, yeah, because of all this, yeah, I know that you are a slave. You need freedom. Being the light of the world and the son of God, I am the son and I can set you free. Whoever the son sets free is free indeed. Come to me, believe, let me set you free. But the Jews on this day in John 8, they're blind. They're blind in their slavery. Many of them, thousands of them even, will come to believe. They'll be set free from their bondage after Jesus' death and resurrection, but they can't see now. Now again, even though Christians across the centuries have used texts like these and made conclusion that, conclusions that, that Jews must be then the children of Satan, that they're cursed by God and that we should join in God, with God in like helping to curse them further. This is no anti-Semitic diatribe of Jesus. Jesus is, the Jew, is a Jew. He loves the Jews. Paul, in talking about the Jews, said he would give his own salvation for the Jews that they might believe. The Jews here are just a stand-in for the entire world. A world of blindness. A world that can't see. An entire world whose father, the one we naturally share more family resemblance with, the devil, all of us sharing this father. Left to ourselves, we are no less blind than them. Left to ourselves, we are no less in bondage than these Jews in John 8. I read on Friday that idols are slave traders disguised as abolitionists. That's really good. Let that sink in a minute. I, idols are slave traders disguised as abolitionists. And that's true, isn't it? Good things in our life that we give worship to, that we think will set us free, our careers, our passions, our health and fitness, our children, our fun and entertaining leisure times, our comfort. All of these things come to us promising to set us free. But all of these are good things, but they are not God. They are not able to keep their promises. They come to us in our slavery and they promise to make us free, but then they just sell us even deeper and deeper into the darker circles of slavery, delivering us into slavery, but certainly not to life. And it's not just that our vision is so twisted that we make good things and turn them into God things, or that we even love and long for more of what is most assuredly against the Lord, but left to ourselves, even the best thing, Jesus, he looks terrible. Think about it. If I had a hot fudge sundae, I don't know how I kept it from not melting, but if I pulled that thing out, it was beautiful and delicious. It would look really good to most of you, right? You'd, you'd want it. But you've been sick before, right? Like, before the days of Netflix, when you were like, when you, we could just binge a, an entire series all day with zero commercials, think about when you were younger or 15 years ago and you were so you had an upset stomach and you just laid up on the couch all day in front of the TV and like, I don't know, a Wendy's commercial came on and that burger looked disgusting. <laughs> or even an ice cream commercial comes on. 
a hot fudge sundae that in your health looks delicious, now because of your sickness, looks repulsive. It looks horrible. It makes you want to throw up. The difference between it being inviting and attractive or repulsive and horrible is the difference between whether you're well or you're sick. And apart from the intervening and illuminating grace of God, Jesus will always be an upset stomach, hot fudge Sunday. Something that inherently is great and good, but because of your condition, looks terrible, repulsive. Now, repulsion might not look like or feel like repulsion. There are plenty of people who can say today that there's a whole lot about Jesus that I can really get behind. I really like his values here. I like his, his thoughts on this thing or this attitude that he has. I'm not repulsed by him. But this kind of thinking is exactly what Jesus is really pushing on here. The kind of people like in verse 30 believed in him. They could really get behind a lot of what he stood for. They liked his teaching on this or that. But here's what Jesus actually stood for. Jesus stood for the praise of God's glorious grace through the forgiveness of sins by the coming of his cross, his brutal death, apart from which there is no life and only death. And unless we abide in his word, all of it, hearing and receiving his words, then we will not be his disciples. We'll be the ones who just pick and choose what we like. Showing ourselves to think that we are superior to him and that we are superior to God. That is a sick and repulsed by Jesus kind of heart. Which is why it's such a praise-inducing miracle when he gives sight. When he causes a stomach to not be repulsed by this wonderful, beautiful thing, but is instead attracted to it. When he causes someone not to put their hope in their first birth, but in their second. When he calls us, like he'll call Lazarus from the tomb, dead Lazarus from the tomb in John 11. When Jesus now just doesn't become not merely repulsive, not even tolerable, but desirable and the thing with which we cannot live. Not just an image out there that we think might be hypothetically good for humanity, but by seeing him more clearly that he personally and experientially becomes good for me. Not just for after I die someday, but good for me now. Now because we've been talking a lot about fathers, about sons and daughters, resemblances and families, and because I haven't had an opportunity to talk about parenting in a long while, uh, let's take a few minutes here, shall we? If people, if people, by their very enslaved and blind nature, can't see Jesus as glorious apart from God's grace, then we can perhaps tend toward thinking that there's really nothing that we need to do, right? God's just going to save who he's going to save. What we do as parents doesn't matter. He'll just give sight to whom he'll give sight to. Or perhaps on the flip side, that because we're, we're a Christian family with Christian values, that it's just a given that our children will grow up uh, sharing the same faith that I have as their father. But 
to again use an illustration that some of us have used before as parents, our role is to just begin piling up as much kindling around our children as possible. The Lord will, if it's his will, ignite it, but we want to pile as much stuff up around them as possible. So as parents, there's nothing more important than, than we can do than to read the Bible with our children. That's a, a stick here to, to teach them that you will, your, your life spiritually uh, it needs regular and ongoing life with the church there's a little more kindling there disciplining hard and disobedient hearts to show them that there is joy in obedience more sticks more sticks talking about what God is teaching you as you're getting ready for school or driving around town or brushing teeth and going to bed this is just leaves and sticks and newspapers piling up around, praying regularly and earnestly for them, pouring some gasoline around with the hope that God might one day ignite them, ignite them, give them sight and ignite their souls. Parents, you have few, if any, higher callings to, than to immerse your kids in the gospel. Of course, God can move, he can act, he can save however he would like, but what we've been seeing in our reading plan through Israel's history and what we can observe through history is what one writer says, that without careful and intentional discipleship, what one generation believes, the next generation assumes, and then the third generation denies. The church is always two generations from denying the gospel altogether. So think this week, not just about your own children, but your children's children. Are your unborn grandkids or your great-grandkids growing in their love of God and in their love of his word and his church this week? Are you pointing your kids towards a Christian faith that they will be excited to point their own children toward? College students, singles, the Lord may or may not give you a spouse. The Lord may or may not give you children. But the great news of the gospel is that God is not expanding his kingdom through first births, but he's expanding it through second births. Who are those people in your life that you might call a son or daughter in the faith? Who are those people in your life that you're moving towards with the gospel, that you're trying to pile kindling around? Perhaps they didn't have parents that piled any kindling around them. Perhaps you could do that. Use your singleness as a gift from the Lord, not as an unwanted gift from your great aunt that just stays up on the mantle all year long, but a gift that is useful, a mighty useful tool for the kingdom. Young kids, high school students, are you trusting in the gospel because it's good for you because you want it yourself? Are you trusting in the gospel because your parents do? Because this is just what we do as a family. Are you reading your Bible at home? Or is that just kind of what you're supposed to do? Would you kind of rather just stay home tonight on Sundays, watch TV, maybe catch up on some homework? It's kind of a drag when mom and dad force you into the car. Jesus is here for you, and he's here for you now. Trust him. Don't think that you'll just get serious about all this someday. 
after high school or after college or after I get married or something. First of all, don't assume that after years and years and years of ignoring him that you still will have a soft heart towards him. That your heart won't be so hard and after so many years of sickness, of being repulsed by him even, that you'll actually want him one day. But also don't rob yourself of years and years of joy. Like we thought through last week, what Jesus is calling you toward might look hard. And it will be hard to feel the tug of the world and yet, for Jesus' sake, deny yourself. But his way is the way of light and of life and of joy. Stay near to him now so that you can be even nearer to him as an adult and for eternity. I guarantee you, you won't regret it. All right, so back to the text. We thought through what it means to be a son of God. Well, actually not really. We really thought more about what it means to not be a son of God. These were people who were thinking God was their father, but they weren't. But secondly, and if we actually want to be a son of God, we do so through the son of God. The Jews are understandably ticked. Jesus has just told them that if they don't hear, if they don't believe, if they don't respond to his teaching, that they are children of Satan. They look more like Satan and share more of his spiritual DNA than Abraham's or certainly of God's. They accuse him again, like they did in chapter 7, of having a demon speaking the things of Satan. And since parents and lineage is still so front and center, they also accuse him of being a Samaritan, which he's not. But if he were, then that would mean he's some like half-breed Jew and Assyrian. They're just going after his lineage, going after who his parents really are. Jesus just flat out ignores the Samaritan thing. He doesn't even waste any time on that. But he rejects this demon thing as ridiculous. Because he's saying that rejecting me, if you reject me, you're rejecting God. And now you're just grasping at straws to justify yourself. Early in the chapter, he told them that if they don't listen to him, that they would die in their sins. But then he ups the ante in verse 51, and he tells them, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So he says, if you don't keep my word, you'll stay dead and in your sins. And if you keep my word, you'll never taste death. Come on now, that's just ridiculous, right? Like, verse 52, they say, now we know you have a demon. That's stupid. Abraham and all of the greatest prophets of Israel, they heard from God. They spoke his words, but nobody's seeing Abraham and Isaiah walking around today. They're dead. And they've been dead for centuries. And not just themselves, they preached to all these people who then heard the word of God through these prophets, and they died. So are you seriously about to make the claim that you are greater than all of the prophets? And by saying what you're saying, that if we listen to you, you can keep us from death? If they'd really been paying attention, they would have already known the answer to their question is an obvious yes, but Jesus answers them in verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Okay, you're talking crazy again, but just answer the question. Are you really claiming to be greater than Abraham and all the prophets? 
56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Abraham saw, past tense, he saw me presently and he saw my coming. And when he saw, all those years ago, when he saw what I am now presently doing, what I'm now presently teaching, what I'm now presently revealing, Abraham got real happy. He was filled with joy about everything that I'm doing right now. Now, I always kind of chuckle at this going on right here. When I I think about the Jews' faces, a lot of times when Jesus says something, I think that, like, they, they immediately understand what he's saying. They respond passionately. We're going to see them respond very passionately. They understand what he's going to say in like two verses. But I kind of just imagine them getting totally confused and speechless here. Jesus says, Abraham was so glad when he saw what I'm doing. And they're like, yeah. Uh, wait, what? What did, you, what did you just say? They have no idea what he's talking about. They say, you're not 50 years old. What are you talking about? Abraham was alive like 18 or 1900 years ago. You're not even 50. What are the world, what in the world are you talking about? He would have been glad to see you. You're 30. But also, how in the world do you claim to know about Abraham's like inner emotions, his gladness all of those hundreds of years ago? Jesus has been kind of dancing around who he is for the past several chapters. And sure, there's been some grenades tossed here and there. But even with a grenade, the general landscape can stay the same. But the whole landscape of their worldview, while mostly intact right now, Jesus is now on his final approach in the Enola Gay, the plane that would drop the first atomic bomb. Nothing will ever be the same after he's about to say what he's going to say. In verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So you'll you'll hear from time to time that Jesus didn't actually believe that he was God. In the first few centuries, as time went on, his life, his legend, his myth grew into somewhat of a tall tale, he would have never wanted people to believe that he was God. So the story goes. But what Jesus did just right here is not just say that he was alive when Abraham was alive. If he was saying that, he could have said, before Abraham was, I was. I existed before Abraham and during his life. But he's not just a pre-existing eternal being. What Jesus just said is, before Abraham was, I am. I am God's name for himself, Yahweh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Michael Bastaros told me that he had a buddy in med school who was a Jehovah's Witness, and Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a very important being, like the most Uh, supreme, angelic, and heavenly being ever created. But nevertheless, a created being. Not God, not to be confused with or worshipped 
as God, but Michael in med school showed his friend this verse, and then he showed his buddy the crowd's reaction. What are they doing? They're grabbing rocks. They're ready to stone Jesus. They completely understand the implications of what Jesus just said. And Michael's buddy, for the first time, understood what Jesus was saying about himself. And this is actually how we are to be set free. This is actually how we are to become sons of God. Chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is through this God-man that we can become sons and daughters of God. We can become a son or daughter of God when we attach ourselves to the Son of God. His righteous life, his perfect, honorable, righteous life as a good son by faith becomes now our life. Our sinful life, our sinful life of being a rebellious and dishonorable and petulant child all of our days by faith becomes his place of death. His inheritance, every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places that is owed to him as the son of God is now ours in Christ. His sonship becomes our sonship. We become sons and daughters of God through him being the son of God. Or as Augustine says, the son of God became the son of man so that sons of men could become sons of God. Incredible. Are you confident that you are a son or daughter of God? Not just because some, you have some vague, sentimental American understanding that God is a good father or something, because that's what you've always believed. It's true. But instead of laying hold of God as father with just some vague sentimentality, laying hold of him as father with confident desperation because Jesus, our older brother, he says, yeah, yeah, she's with me. Yeah, he's with me. Yeah, that's, that's my kid sister over there. She's with me. She's my kid brother coming on in. Yeah, I, I know, I know. He's, he's weak, he's timid, he's fearful, but he's beginning to more and more and more look like me. He shares the family resemblance. And maybe you got a bad perception of fathers. Maybe you were hurt by a father. You still have intense emotional pain by a father. So the idea of God as father is not actually one that's attractive. Life is just easier going it alone, you think. No one can break my heart if I don't entrust it to someone. But this is a father who will not let you down. He will not leave you or abandon you. He knows you. He sees you. He cares. He knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you better and more intensely than you love yourself. And like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, he stands not just waiting to welcome you to his family, but he is coming running with his arms wide open, welcoming you to his family. I've been praying for you this week. Those of you who have had pain and hurt and loss by the idea of a father, by your own father, and so this idea of father isn't that attractive. 
and praying that you might be able to say and mean what we often sing. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I trust you. I trust you because you're a good father. I know that you love me. And I know that you will protect me and you care for me. So take it. It's yours. This day, though, in John 8, the the God of Israel, he revealed himself. And the people rejected him. Because of their blind sickness, he was sickeningly repulsive to them. And so they wanted to kill him. But Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. The presence of God left the temple. Ichabod, the presence of God, the glory of God has departed from this place and it will not return again until it returns as the perfect and spotless Passover lamb and his final coming. The spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and gives sight to the blind, health to the sick, life to the dead, so that they might be set free. Hear him and respond to him tonight. Don't reject him. Don't hear the invitation of God and reject him. Respond to him tonight, perhaps for the first time. Respond in faith and become part of the family of God. Respond in faith now like Abraham. Those of you who have been trusting in him for years or decades, keep following him. Stay near to him. He is the light of life in whom the sun sets free. He will be free indeed. But as I've read, to know all that we know about Jesus and still be indifferent is no small sin. To know everything that we are learning through this gospel and still remain indifferent to him is no small sin. Do not stay in your sins. Do not stay in your death. Jesus has thrown wide the door to your prison cell, that you might stand, that you might walk out of the cell and follow him in joy and in life for all of your days and for eternity. Why don't we begin to look more and more like our older brother Jesus as we begin to share and resemble more and more our father. Let's ask for his help. Father, we do not... Take for granted that we can actually call you Father. The high King of heaven, the creator of all things, the majestic God of the universe has invited us into his family through Christ. Father, what joy, what confidence to come into your presence, to just enjoy being with you because of our being your sons and daughters. Might we love you more? Might we have more joy throughout our days and our weeks because of this reality? Might we love each other more as your family? All of us being your adopted sons and daughters, which means that we are adopted brothers and sisters along together in your family. Might we love and care for one another more deeply, dearly, and more intensely because of what you have done for us? Might we each day begin to look more and more like you, less and less like our old self. We pray for this for your glory in our lives, that the nations might see what you are doing amongst your children, and for our own joy, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, 
visit www.christchurchabq.com.